I think if you've got someone like Quentin Tarantino running the show, he's kind of the star of the movie in a way. So everybody else below him is just like, I think, you know, even, even the Brad Pitts and Margot Robbie's are kind of like, this is cool, I'm in a Tarantino movie. You know? <laughs> Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rate Active podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. It would also be so amazing if you could leave a rating and review to help us bring you more episodes in the future. I'm your host, Rachel Jay, and I'm super excited to welcome my guest to the show today. He is an actor who has an incredible body of work. You may have seen him on CSI, Breaking Bad, Justified, Mindhunter, plus so many more, and of course, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood alongside Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. Welcome to the show, Damon Harriman. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show. I'm so uh, grateful that we get to sit down and chat because obviously you are actually on location filming right now somewhere amazing and incredible. What's the sitch over there? Yeah, I'm, um, I, I kind of, uh, by pure fortune, got to escape the uh, rising COVID numbers in Sydney and uh, I'm, I'm doing a, a miniseries in Thailand at the moment. Um, Amazing. Uh, which is a Netflix miniseries all about the, uh, the Thai uh, cave rescue of the, the 13 soccer players a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Um, so yes, I remember that. I'm currently in quarantine, although quarantine here... <laughs> is quite different from quarantine at home. They, the whole island of Phuket is the quarantine. So rather than not being able to leave your room, you can't leave the island. <laughs> so it's, it's not actually that oh. bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. So still more freedom than we're getting in Melbourne, actually, I think. We're, we're yeah, sort of, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, because things aren't open here. Thank you so much for joining me. I feel like when we were teeing this up, we were just chatting about this earlier before we, we hit record, but we were trying to figure out when the last time we saw each other was. And so... We, I think it was Larry Moss, which was in, I believe that was in Melbourne. Was that work? Yeah, I Melbourne? came to watch a Larry Moss. Were you, were you participating or watching? I can't remember. I think I was auditing that class when he was in Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so. Yeah, yeah. Now that would have been maybe five years ago. It's a guess. Yeah, something like yeah. that. And then, and then after we sort of chatted, I, I was thinking about when the, the previous time to that would I would have seen you and I kind of feel like it was on set in LA. I think it was. Oh, maybe. I think you were shooting Wilfred. Jason, I worked on Wilfred in Australia. That's why I was visiting set then because we'd met on the Australian shoot. Ah, right, right, I right. just have a feeling that's where I saw you because I think. Right. Were you, were you dressed up in costume? Like, did you have a costume for that show? I was dressed as a like a security guard who had who had only one ear. Yes, you had some <laughs> sort of like prosthetics or something Prosthetic. on. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think it was because I was visiting set. That it was like so random that I saw you that day. Um, because I right, so that right. was a really really long time ago. That is a long time ago. That I can't even remember when that was. That might have been like ten years ago. Yeah, it would have been but, quite a while. Uh, I'm sure we probably ran into each other at. Australians in film function things over the years as well. There's been so many things in LA that we just kind of bump into each other. So I'm I'm so excited that we get to sit down and, and chat properly and obviously catch up on all the stuff you've been doing over the last, you know, 10, however many years since it's been since we've seen each other. But, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, we talk a lot about on the podcast is, uh, you know, dreams and self-belief and all of that kind of stuff. And obviously as an actor, I feel that, it's one of those careers that I feel like you have to have big dreams to be an actor and to really even pursue that avenue because it, I don't know about you, but I, I had always felt it was such a, such a big goal. So I'm, yeah. I'm really curious to know, I mean, you know, you're so far into your career now having already achieved, you know, such success, but earlier on, was this a big dream of yours and, and how did how did it kind of start? You know, how did you sort of start to pursue it? Uh, well, I guess initially I started as a kid. I, I kind of fell into it as a child actor. I did a lot of TV uh, around in Australia um, around the age of 10, 11, 12 that I just sort of got into by joining a kid's agency. Well, actually it wasn't a kid's agency, but joining an agency as a kid in Adelaide where I was growing up. And that led to auditions, which led to some of this TV work. I then kind of 
gave up on it. I wasn't that interested during high school and I thought I wanted to do a proper job. And then high school finished and I was like, okay, I can't think of a proper job I want to do, so I want to go back to doing <laughs> acting. Um, and, uh, look, I think the idea of working in America was always I mean, I'd probably say a fantasy more than a dream because I never really thought uh, I am. I am definitely uh, very much a realist, uh, and you could even mm-hmm. say to the extent of I'm probably more half glass empty than half glass full, which doesn't really. It's not a great attribute to have if you want to be kind of forwarding your career in 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 places like America. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I've I've always been more on the side of having the attitude, um, oh, why will they want to cast me rather than, damn it, I'm going to show them what I, what I've got and I'm going to I'm going to kick down the doors over there. I've never been that guy. I've all, I've, I've I've really been, uh, and, and 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 I'm not I'm, I'm not saying that's good advice. I'm just saying that's that's the truth when it comes to me. I, I don't think, um, I don't think it's you know across the board a. Uh, a generally successive, successful uh, quality to have to be overly <laughs> self-deprecating or, or, or lacking in self-belief and trying to make it in Hollywood. Um, but what I guess I did have was a determination to make sure I had kind of crossed every T and dotted every I before giving up on America. So um, mm. initially it was always just like, a, oh, God, it'd be amazing to work over there, but how would that even happen? And yeah. um, I was sort of working on and off through my 20s. The America thing really happened because I, I um, uh, initially really happened because I, I got a role in House of Wax, which was an American horror film shooting in Australia. And yes. that's kind of what took me over there. I went over there for the premiere of it and got an agent and a manager through being connected with that film. And... Um, yeah, I, I didn't ever do that thing, which a lot of our friends did, which was, you know, just say, okay, I'm I'm now going to move to America to live for five years. And, and, and mm. uh, I, I didn't ever feel confident enough to do that. So I would do these little trips of kind of three months at a time. And I, I did, uh, I'd done two three-month trips after getting an agent and didn't get any success, didn't get, I mean, I got a couple of auditions, didn't get close to anything. And this is where that sort of... Um, you know, realist half glass empty thing comes in. <laughs> Rather than say, you know, I'm just going to keep coming till you hire me. I was like, okay, I'm going to do one more trip, and then I'm going to take, I'm going to get the hint that I'm not yes. going to get cast in in America. And and I was actually okay with it. It wasn't, it wasn't like because I because it was something I thought would be amazing to happen. But I also thought, well, why would it happen to me? I, I guess I was number crunching, going, well, I'm one guy in this pool of actors. By then, I was mm. mid thirties as well, which is relatively old to be a new actor in a in a in another country. So mm. I was thinking, well, you know, I, if this doesn't happen, I can at least be in my rocking chair in my nineties and say, I tried that; it didn't work. I didn't. I didn't want to. Yeah. Re- I didn't want to regret it. I, that was my big thing. I didn't want to regret not trying. So I said, I'm going to do one more trip, and if nothing comes out of that third trip, I'm I'm not going to come back. And I was absolutely content with that. And on about the third day of that third trip, I got a an audition for a, a guestie in a TV show, and I got the role. And that that awesome. that one role um, really changed everything for me psychologically. Mm, yeah, and I feel like you know you kind of there's a certain point to which I mean it's hard as an actor because yes, of course you can have this this idea of I'm just going to keep going until I get it. But like you said. Not to say that it's a good thing to have this idea of, you know, being a half glass empty, but there is like that tipping point of knowing when you want to change direction or use a different tact to move your career forward because, you know, um, yes. cha- you know, chasing your dreams is one thing, but then also having that ability to, I guess, monitor the situation and, and kind of take in other information. So, but it was great that that actually happened for you and then kind of led you then obviously to stay in the States and continue to pursue work there, right? Yeah, that, that sort of, you know, that tipped, uh, uh, that sort of flicked a switch in my brain. It was, it was really going from this isn't possible to this is possible. That was the switch really. Um, and I didn't know whether the, the this is possible meant that meant, meant I was going to get out of the roles necessarily, but I knew it was possible um, because I just got one. And um, 
the difference between this is impossible to this impossible felt like a, a Mount Everest. It, like it, it really seemed like, uh, you know, the, the idea of working there when you haven't, especially then, because there weren't really that many Australians there. I'm talking to uh, 2005. There were big movie star Australians, but they weren't just those reams of Australians that we see when we're over there who were, who, who were working. So it, it wasn't like, oh, well, I've seen all the proof of how easy it is to work here or, or how possible it is to work here. There wasn't a lot of proof. I was seeing massive movie stars and then me and going, well, the, there's a huge chasm between us. So that 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 getting that one role did make me decide, well, I'm definitely going to keep coming back now. Now, now I'm sure had I not got more work, there would have been another point where I would have said, okay, this is my last trip. But um, thankfully, that that didn't happen. It, it just kind of slowly progressed to, um, and and I, and I mean very slowly, <laughs> progressed yeah. to being more jobs and bigger jobs and better jobs. And yeah. then by about 2009 or 2010, I I got a a pilot called Justified. Um, playing a character called Dewey Crow, who was in the pilot but wasn't intended to be in the series necessarily, and that ended up being uh, a recurring role that lasted for six years. And that that meant that not only did that mean that I had income when I was going there and I had a reason to be there for many years to come, it also opened up other doors for other jobs because finally there was a thing to, I guess, for agents to call casting directors and say, he plays Dewey and Justified and, and it was something to refer to and it was something to put on a showreel. Yeah, yeah, which is amazing because I think that's the thing. Once things sort of get going, it sort of leads, it kind of builds momentum, I suppose, especially with acting. It's kind of just the way that the, the industry works. But I'm interested to know when were the times that you felt like you have been challenged most with your belief about yourself and your goals and where you have wanted to take your career? Where, when have those times been where you felt really challenged? Uh, I mean, a lot of those experience hap- experiences happened in my 20s and early 30s before doing the Americans. I mean, certainly the American first couple of trips to America, that were constantly challenged about what am I doing here? You feel like a fraud. You feel like an intruder. You feel like someone who snuck into a party you weren't invited to. <laughs> um, uh, but in my 20s and early 30s, when I was just acting in Australia, there were lots of periods where I just wasn't getting work at all um, for, uh, you know, uh, six to 12 months sometimes. Um, and I had for a lot of that time, I had other jobs, like I had an office job to, to pay the bills. I got into doing voiceovers to pay the bills. But um, there were certainly periods in my 20s uh, and early 30s where I was sort of only half feeling like I was an actor. I never wrote actor as occupation when it was on a form. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I felt like, you know, I, I would hear of people getting auditions that, you know, I was like, why aren't I getting, you know, it's a classic actor thing. Why aren't I getting an audition for that? And you call your <laughs> agent and then they call you back an hour later saying I've spoken to the casting director. They said you're not right. And you're like, you know, there's nothing nothing worse than not getting an audition. I, I, I think not getting an audition for something that you feel you're right for is worse than not getting a role that you went for. Because when you go for a role and you don't get it, it's disappointing, but you can at least justify it and go, well, I guess someone else was better or they were more right for it. When you don't get to go for it, you've got this whole sliding doors world in your head of what would have happened if I auditioned and got got it? You know, I'll never know because I didn't, they didn't see me. So there were lots of those moments of feeling really crappy and, and, uh, um, you know, yeah. You, you, How did you <laughs> deal with that? How did you deal with those moments of self-doubt? Because, uh, you know, obviously you don't have to be an actor to deal with self-doubt. We all deal with it in, in different contexts of our life. So what was sort of like your best way of dealing with that in those moments where you just think, well, you know, am I even really good at this? Do people even want to see me? You know, is this going to go anywhere? All of those kinds of thoughts, I think. I think for me, I was lucky in a couple of ways. Um, one was that because I'd started as a kid, as a, and it seemed like just a fun hobby thing that I'd done and then I sort of kept doing it. So it, I think it's much harder if you, say, come out of NIDA or WAPRA or VCA or one of the big acting schools, you've invested three years, you, you're just like, here I am, world, take me, and 
the world doesn't take you and, and it's just such a fall. Mm. Whereas for me it was just sort of this slow plod from childhood into adulthood and then kind of like, oh, yeah, I'll start doing that again. So I didn't quite have the emotional investment. I mean, I mm. think... I think the I think you know in 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 life in general how devastated something can be is 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 all related to how emotionally invested we are you know even think about like in a relationship if someone breaks up with you that you're crazy about that it's the end of the world mm. if someone breaks up with you that you weren't that into it's like well that's a shame you know <laughs> yeah. and it's just, it's a kind of it's a kind of the same with this it's like I think it was never I, because I'd sort of just stumbled in back into it like, yeah, I'll, I'll start doing this again. Yeah. I didn't have that huge emotional investment. Also, I think because when I left high school, I went into an office job, which I stayed at for nine years. I was still acting. Wow. But but the office job was what I did every day. I put on a shirt and tie. I went into the office. And so it wasn't that thing that uh, I, I have more now, in fact, which is the sitting around at home thinking, is the phone going to ring? Am I ever going to work again? You know, which every actor has. Mm. Uh, even, you know, I've had a very fortunate you know, last 10 years, but, you know, you know, obviously during COVID, everything went quiet and you're like, wow, what, what, what if this doesn't, what if I don't work again? You know, you, yeah. you do have those questions. Um, I think because I, again, uh, had the psychological comfort of going, I have a job, I go to work. Um, and I, it, it wasn't on my mind. The hard thing um, is when you are an, an actor and all you, you you live and breathe doing it and it's mm. nothing else. Yep. And I think um, one thing I started doing in my 20s and I still continue to do to this day is is writing, um, writing scripts. Um, now, uh, some of them have been made. The short films have been made. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a, a couple of uh, feature films now. I don't know. Oh, if they're ever going to get made, it's 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 not that hard to get a short film made if you get a few mates together. It's very hard to get a feature film made. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to happen, but but from a psychological perspective, it's such a great creative outlet. It it really does replace, uh, re- in a, like I think perfectly replace the 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 need and the desire for the. Uh, creative outlet that you normally get from acting yeah now of course that doesn't mean that doesn't doesn't mean you're going to get paid you're going to get paid money for it for that writer you still need to think about how you're going to eat yeah so that that's a, that's a whole other thing altogether um that you need to be aware of is that you also sometimes need to take jobs that you don't really want to do um in order to uh, pay the pay the bills yeah i think it's important what you just mentioned there was just making sure that too you don't have all your self-worth or everything wrapped up in one thing and whether that's acting or something else because it's kind of dangerous if you have everything there if you succeed or you don't succeed everything's dependent on what happens and and the industry is so out of our control as actors that it's again very dangerous to to just be waiting for something to happen if nothing is happening then you can do other things fill your life with with other things that you enjoy doing which is really great that you found with writing yeah. absolutely so one of the things that I'm interested to know about your process as an actor is is obviously making choices about characters do you make a lot of choices about your character beforehand and then how much how much do you allow yourself to sort of play in the moment when you're on set obviously there's constraints in terms of who you're working with as a director and all of that kind of stuff but what? How much of it do you do prior to? How many choices do you make beforehand, and how much yeah, do you allow yourself that, to play? It's a really good question. I, I think um, it's funny. Sometimes you get asked questions like this. You're like, "Oh, I haven't thought about that." <laughs> but actually, I, 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 that's a really good question. Um, no, that I would say that things like line readings are never a good idea to plan. I mean, sometimes if you're reading something um, that you're going to be playing and it's comedic there will be line readings that pop into your head whether you want them to or not because there's comedic timing written into a line and you're looking forward to saying it that certain way because you know you're going to hit that button and make it funny. But in general, I think you don't want to be pre-planning anything to do with the way you're going to say something um, or the emphasis you're going to use. Um, but in terms of who who the character is and the way they present themselves, the way they walk, talk, move, uh, re- react whether they're you know someone who's um, laid back and quiet or someone who's you know loud someone who's um, intimidating or or not all those things um, I definitely think you want to have an idea idea of before you're going to set because mm. um, that's you, you want to make sure you're 
you're, you're, you're playing the same character moment to moment and scene to scene. You don't want to be working it out on the fly and then suddenly you, you've kind of nailed it by, by the fourth scene you do and it actually bears no resemblance to the guy you played at the first scene. So you want to have an idea who it is. I mean, it also depends on certain things like um, I've played a few real people. When you're playing real people, a lot of the uh, that question is answered by, uh, you know, well, how did that person? If it's you know, say Charles Manson, how did that? How did can I can I look at video of him? Yes, there's lots mm. of it. How did he hold himself? What was his vibe? How did he sound? How did he move? How did he sit? Um, there are all those things to take into account, which are very different from when you're you know most characters, which you're you're kind of starting from yeah. scratch. Uh, with with most characters, I would I would I would really just take it from a combination of um, the, how the character comes across in the script, and then any kind of character breakdown that may be written separate from that. And then sometimes you've got a bit more information as well from a casting director or a director about the mm-hmm. character. Um, but I I um, I mean that's why you know I, I sort of bang on about how important the writing is. Good writing. Uh, and good writing of characters that really makes them clear and clean and jump out of the page where you go, oh, I know who that is. You know, I, I know I can I can see this character as I read it. I find those are so much easier to play than characters who are just the guy. You know, it sometimes you just read a character and that's the, you know, that's the doctor character. Mm. And the dialogue's good and he's saying interesting stuff, but you're like, I don't know who this guy is, who he mm. is, is. I can't get a sense of anything about him. And I think in those kinds of roles for me, just at, at the type of actor, I think I am, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not the right person for those roles. I don't think I do them very well. I think those roles that aren't hugely well-defined, you're probably better off casting someone who has in themselves a really interesting charismatic kind of uh, kind of quality that that comes through and adds that to the character. Mm. I feel like um, I, I want uh, what my what I like to do and what I feel comfortable doing is roles where they are often not anything like me but very clearly defined on the mm. page. So you get to really immerse yourself in and embody this this total other human that's separate to you, right? And um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, look, uh, uh, th- th- there's something fun about playing characters that are like yourself as well. But again, um, th- th- that doesn't happen very often. It's it's normally something that's miles away from you, or it's just a kind of stereotypical stereotypical kind of stick figure who has no nothing about them that you could describe. Yeah. Like if someone said, "What are they like?" You'd be like, uh, they're, "They're a doctor." Um, I guess they like doctoring, um, you, know, <laughs> you know, and there's, there's not much else you could say. Uh, those roles I find very, very hard to do. And um, it's, that's one of the kind of uh, privileges I've, I've experienced in the last few years is, is getting to do roles. Uh, you know, this is something you don't sort of, I, I didn't realise when I was younger and doing small roles that were less defined on the page is how much harder they are. It's like, it gets it gets easier the bigger the roles mm. get, and I never thought of it like that before. But the smaller roles where you've just got to be the person selling the groceries in the supermarket, and 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 you've got those two scenes, is a way harder role to play than the guy that's got got eighty scenes in the whole mm. thing because you get to immerse yourself and you get a journey and you get to work out who they are and you don't put any pressure on any one scene like you do. You got one scene in something. It's like you're putting all this pressure <laughs> on yourself to get it right, yeah. you know. Um, well, coming back to Charles Manson because this obviously this role was a, a big role for you. Well, the film was a really highly anticipated film. A lot of people were waiting for this, for Tarantino's latest film when this came out. It was 2019 when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, was released. So... What was the moment like for you when you got the call for getting that role? Were you what? What was that? well? It was bizarre because I was already cast to play Charles Manson in Mindhunter when I got the call to yeah. play Charles Manson in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I'd actually um, auditioned for Mindhunter um, in uh, late 2017, early 2018. And then I got the role in like January, knowing that I was going to be shooting it in August. And it was really, really far ahead, purely because of how detailed the prosthetics were going to be in Mindhunter. They they got mm. um, uh, Kazu, who's this, the best really prosthetic makeup artist in the world, um, 
and uh, because of how detailed that was going to be and having to do tests and things, that was done months and months ahead. So when I auditioned for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'd already been studying Charles Manson for five months and I got an audition to play wow. Charles Manson. It was, it was incredibly lucky. Um, the only adjustment I really had to make was that in the movie it's about 11 years earlier than in the film and in the movie he's sort of very, you know, look, in the movie as it is now there's there's very, very little of him. There's, uh, we did a shot about another three or four minutes that's on the in the deleted scenes on the DVD. But um, So there, there, was, there was some more fun stuff to do and, and, and uh, it was a different version of him from the one in Mindhunter where he's in jail and he's very angry and bitter. Um, even his voice had changed a bit. But in general, it was incredibly lucky to have studied the, the, the one guy for so long and then got to do an audition for him. When I got that call... So did you kind of just think like, you, yeah, you were like, I've got this? Oh, I definitely, didn't, I definitely didn't think I've got this because I knew it was like a Quentin Tarantino film and it's still, you know, I'm glass half empty, remember? So I was like, well, why would I get in a Quentin Tarantino <laughs> film? But um, I, I guess I, I guess I thought it was more possible than it would normally have been, just because I'd been spending so much time watching Charles Manson. Uh, and then um, I got the call on the day. Uh, I think it was the day after I'd flown to America for a makeup test for Charles Manson for Mindhunter. Wow. So I'd just been <laughs> fitted with the Mindhunter makeup. And then the next day I get a call saying you just got Charles Manson in this other thing. So my initial thought was joy but also disappointment because I thought, well, now I'm going to lose this role because you're going to have to call up, up Tarantino's company and say, hey, look, he's already playing Charles Manson in Mindhunter and there was no way that wasn't going to happen. Um, I was two weeks away from filming. Uh, and I was convinced they was going to say, oh, well, we're not going to get the same guy. We'll just get the next guy on the list. And uh, instead they came right. back and said, um, Quentin's fine about that. And so it, it all happened. So yeah. good. So what was it like on set working with, with Tarantino? How, how was it? It was so much fun. I was like a kid in a candy store. It was, uh, as I said, in the film, it's, it's such a small amount of on-screen stuff, but we actually shot for four days. Mm. Um, and it was, yeah, it was one of the most uh, joyful, pinch yourself kind of experiences you can imagine. Everyone was incredibly friendly. He's a really fun, friendly, chatty guy. He'll talk to you about anything. What's he like as a director? You know, because obviously different directors, when you work on different sets, every director has a different process with working with actors. So how was it working? How was he with you when you were, you know, sort of working in scene? He's incredibly enthusiastic, which is which you sort of gauge from seeing him interview. That level of energy and enthusiasm that you mm. see, that's what he's like on set. And so um, he gives just the right amount of direction. He'll 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 usually didn't do didn't do too many takes. It was actually only two three takes, maybe four once um, of each setup. Didn't do that many setups. Uh, uh, apparently, he's kind of got the film edited in his head already, so he only shoots what he needs. He doesn't shoot all this extra stuff because wow. he knows what he's going to use already. Um, and just the right amount of direction, you know, you do a take and then he might say, um, okay, give a little uh, give a little wave at this point or uh, why don't you smile here or um, it, it, it was, it, it was uh, and, and, and really encouraging as well. Like, you know, when, when you're working with someone like him, Inside your head, you're, you're, you know, in your in your stomach, you're kind of dying, thinking, what, what? I don't want to get this wrong. Like, what if I disappoint him? What if he's made a mistake, and I get the sense that he's made a mistake? Um, so you really want someone like him to be encouraging, you know, mm -hmm. after each take. And he really, he really was. Oh, he was great. so incredibly nice, and the whole set was so relaxed. So I, I was, you know, I, I'd say to friends afterwards, it was, it was more like being on set with a group of friends making a short together than it was being on a big Hollywood thing because there was no, there was none of that nervous energy of, you know, being a time crunch or um, he also knew all, you know, he knew most of his crew from several of his other films. Uh, and so there was a real family feel to it. Um, even when big stars were on set, like, um, you know, Brad Pitt or Margot Robbie, there wasn't any sense of, that they didn't feel yeah. like, oh, you know, so and so's on set now, behave, or it was just really, really relaxed. I think if you've got someone like Quentin Tarantino running the show, 
he's kind of the star of the movie in a way. Yeah. So everybody else below him is just like, I think, you know, even even the Brad Pitts and Margot Robbie's are kind of like, this is cool. I'm in a Tarantino yeah. movie. You know? Yeah, yeah. I guess they kind of just follow... Follow, he, he's sort of like the, the, I don't say leader, but I mean, he is the leader of the film. And so everyone just will follow yeah. suit, I suppose, with how he, what he brings to the set, I guess, is what, what I, I guess, was trying to say. Yeah. Um, so with, I mean, obviously working with this particular character, Charles Manson, because you played him in Mindhunter and had all that prep. The process of breaking down someone like that, because he's obviously a very complex dude, complex character. Um, yeah. What was that process like, firstly? And is that the same process for breaking down characters or, you know, approaching characters, you approach them in the same way as, as you would with this one? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was, it was, it's considerably different. And, and also for him, especially for two reasons, not only was he a real person, he was a real person uh, to whom I had, like, access of lots of footage. You know, there's so much footage online of, of him and sometimes you play a real person and there's no footage or there's very little. And it was someone else and it was someone that everyone knows. It wasn't just a real person. You know, you could play a real person who ran an oil company but mm, no one knows who that yeah. is really apart from their friends and family. But you play Charles Manson, most people have a an idea of who he was, how he sounded, what he, what his kind of uh, vibe was. And for me, I just really, and I knew a lot of people would be seeing it. And I, I, I yeah, I probably put um, in that six months leading up to both roles, really, um, uh, I put more time into studying, researching a role by far than I ever have before or since. I mean, it was, I, I really wanted to get it Right. I, 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 I wanted to get it as close as I could that people would say or, or people watching it would would forget because I know I've done this sometimes watching things myself where I'm watching someone playing a role. I'm like, wow, I can't actually even remember now the mm. real one. Um, I, you know, like I, 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 I'm kind of I'm replacing this person with the real one now in my head. That's weird. And I, I thought, well, that would be cool if I can get to that point where I knew I had the makeup on my side. That was going to be amazing. So people were going to be seeing Charles Manson in, in Mindhunter. Um, and so um, I, I wanted to just make sure I'd done enough work to give everything else it needed uh, so that people felt like, oh, that, that reminds me of an actual video I've seen of Charles Manson. So it was, a lot, it was a lot less about, you know, normally you'd be going, okay, who is this guy? And you'd be getting that from the script. Yeah. Um, in, in this case... Uh, you didn't need to take it from the script. Uh, the script was amazing, but the script was amazing in that it captured him, the real guy, but it wasn't something where you couldn't have read that script and then done a Charles Manson performance without seeing Charles Manson. You would probably would have done some, something completely different. So I really wanted to um, watch as much video of, of him as I could. Uh, as you said, incredibly complex. That's a that's a perfect word, really. He... he so many different versions of him that he presented. Sometimes he was like a playful court jester. Sometimes he was absolutely terrifying and would play up the kind of psycho version of himself. Other times he talked, you know, there's an interview he does with Ronald Reagan Jr. where he talks like you wouldn't even know that he was a madman if you'd only seen that video. He complete, talks completely normally. Um, he's so complex. And after reading everything and watching everything and listening to everything, I still don't really know what made him tick. But um, ultimately, I just wanted to get it close enough uh, for it to be believable in that uh, in that scene. Mm. Have you ever played a character where the emotional, um, I guess, depth of the character or, or what was going on with the character has has really left a lingering effect on you emotionally? coming out of it because I know I've spoken to um you know a friend of mine who had played a heroin addict for for a while and that that character actually really stuck with him and kind of effed with his mind you know quite a bit afterwards and one of the things that I've noticed as you know being an actor is is understanding how to find the the kind of intricacies of of a character their emotional world their mental world because you want to, you know, play it truthfully. But if you live with that inside you for a long time, sometimes there's this danger of not being able to step out of that character. And then you've got these characteristics that sort of 
hang around. It's not by conscious choice, really. It, it just sort of hangs around. So have you ever had experienced that? And if you have, how have you sort of dealt with maintaining your own, you know, Damon Harriman's emotional and mental state? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, uh, I, I mean, a lot of people ask me that question with regards to Charles Manson, actually, for obvious reasons, mm. but it didn't have that effect with that role because in the scenes I was doing in both cases were not uh, horrific scenes. Um, the stuff yes. that was horrific was stuff that didn't happen on camera. Uh, it was horrific reading about it and uh, watching documentaries about it, but it wasn't horrific playing it. Um, the closest I came to that was a film called The Nightingale, where uh, which is set in 1800s in Tasmania, playing a truly horrific British soldier Um and anyone who uh, has seen that film would 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 know uh, there are the scenes. There are several scenes, uh, but a couple in particular uh, that are incredibly violent, sexually violent. Um, that uh, I really did feel uh, affected me in that way. Um, it, normally, I'm I'm not someone who takes a role home. I, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm kind of in it between action and cut, and I I don't really. Unless it's a particularly emotional scene, I don't tend to sort of stay in the moment even between takes. Um, and certainly by the time I go home, <laughs> I can kind of like it's sort of left behind. Um, mm. But there was certainly a couple of days on the Nightingale on the Nightingale where it felt um, like uh, it was it wasn't yeah it was an unpleasant feeling that you were taking home with you. And yeah, I would hate to think that. Yeah, I would hate to be someone who, who took that sort of thing home with them all the time when they play a horrible character. I've played a lot of horrible characters, so I, I definitely, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I don't, uh, I don't actually carry that home with me. How do you do that where you can just disassociate yourself from the role? Because, I mean, not all actors can do that very well, you know. It's difficult sometimes. I think maybe I'm just lucky to some degree in, in that I am an actor mm. who doesn't and I don't think it's necessarily something I'm doing I just think you know it's a bit like uh you know you I'm all there are actors who stay in character for a whole job I mean D Daniel Day-Lewis famously will, will be mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln for six months you know I I, mm -hmm. I and then and I and he's brilliant and then Anthony Hopkins is also brilliant but he's absolutely says no I just learn the lines and turn up you know and and completely different methods of doing it and equally brilliant results there's no there's no hard and fast rule um, and I, I guess I tend to be more on, in the vein of, of uh, you, you learn the lines and turn up kind of actor uh, than than mm. than living with it. And I, and yeah, it's a hard one for me to answer in terms of how do you not do it because it's not a conscious thing really. It's not like I'm consciously it's not a conscious choice. It's not a conscious choice yeah. to shake it off. It just it just is. Um, I think I'm just lucky that it 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 is uh, it is not something that hangs with me. Um, you know, once I'm back in my own clothes, it's generally pretty much that's been left behind. Yeah. I think the clothes, I mean, costume is a huge one. I think definitely just generally speaking, like it can anchor certain characteristics anyway. So that's a, that's a good breaker anyway. Once you're in, once you're not made up and in your full costume, it, you sort of do feel like, well, okay, well, I'm just sort of back to my normal self again, which is probably a good one. If you were going to consciously break it down, that's a good one to have as a little tip. The other thing that you have been, yep. you know, an advocate for, which I saw you sort of have a voice for is this Perfectly Imperfect campaign, which is all about dismantling the stigma of mental health, which is a, you know, mental health and mental well-being on top of emotional well-being is something that we, you know, sort of like to talk about on the podcast, because aside from physical health, we want to be emotionally and mentally stable too. But I'm interested to know, you know, what your personal experience has been with mental health and or with people that you know and, and why it's important to you. Yeah, I um I remember being in my twenties and and you know you'd hear the term depression and I'd think I don't I don't know what I don't know how you I don't I didn't understand what it meant I didn't I'd never had depression mm -hmm. and I couldn't understand how I knew you could get sad about things but I didn't know how you st have a state of depression that lasts for weeks months or years and uh, I really did uh, have a bout of it and before I went over to America in that uh, sort of house of wax period I was talking about. I actually went five years earlier. I, I won a green card in the lottery and went over there intending to live there, intending to stay for at least a year initially and got deeply depressed first time in my life. I, I, 
I discovered that I was completely out of my comfort zone. I didn't, um, I didn't get representation. I didn't get one audition. I didn't have any friends. And I suddenly felt the most alone I'd ever felt in my life and was, was finding myself going to sleep at night with a lump in my throat and waking up the next day and finding it was still there. And it's just like, what is this? What is going on? Mm. Um, and, uh, that actually made me uh, at some point, I also felt stuck there because I'd said goodbye to everyone and, and sold all my stuff in Sydney. So I was like, well, I can't even leave. Um, and it took someone, it's actually a friend's mother I was on the phone to saying hi, and I was explaining to her what it was like. And uh, she was the first person who said to me, why don't you just come home? Mm. And I was like, what do you mean come home? Like, well, just come home. If it's horrible, why don't you come home? I was like, but can I, can I come home? <laughs> She's like, of course you can come home. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. Why would you want to be there if it's so horrible? And I, I, I booked a flight that night. Um, so that was my that was my first experience with depression. I, I've had bouts of it over the years. Thankfully, I'm not uh, someone who's um, a depressive person all the time, and and usually I'm not. But I uh, I can certainly get get uh, you know things can put me into a depressive state for days, weeks, or months. Um, that that's happened, and and anxiety. I also mm. you know discovered over the years that I'm, I'm quite an, an anxious person. And too, I, I've kind of just thought I've, I, I, you know, friends will laugh about my funny idiosyncrasies that are that are kind of anxious little neurotic things I do or say. But I, I think I, I am generally someone who who, who has anxiety in a, again, luckily, a mild way. Um, uh, I think what is great is that uh, you know mental health stuff has um, has become destigmatized to a large extent. It's still got a way to go, but. There are so many more people talking about mental health issues now. So many people I know uh, suffer from depression and or anxiety uh, and talk about it in a way that they never would have 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. Um, and now even when a friend tells me for the first time that they, oh, you know, I, I, I think I've got this or the doctor thinks I've got that and they seem ashamed about it, you know, one of the first things I say is, oh, Half the people I know have got that, you know, to try and make them realise yeah. that this is not something, uh, and, you know, as is often often said by by the experts, you know, what, we, we, no one says, uh, you know, I'm really ashamed to tell you I broke my arm or, or, or I'm ashamed to tell you that I got skin mm. cancer. Like, it's, it's, a, it's another medical condition that we um, need to deal with and uh, doesn't need to have any shame attached to it. And it is incredibly common. Mm, I think too, with COVID especially, I'm finding that the conversation around mental health has become a lot more normalised because we're collectively experiencing this very strange period of time. So, you know, it's definitely great to be able to, you know, talk about it as if it's just something that a lot of people experience. Um, yeah, it's so it's, true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's ironic. It's horrible how many people are suffering with their mental health during COVID. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It, it, it uh, has opened the conversation far more broadly than it has been before about a topic that that people, um, even though they talk about it more than they did, still still is 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 the last kind of. It's still the it's still one of the the few um, uh, medical issues that people are can be ashamed about. And now you're right; it is affecting so many people um, that um, you know. Um, I I I. I, I don't want to call it a silver lining because I, it's still such a horrible thing that people are suffering. But if anything positive comes out of that, it, it's that maybe people are going to talk about mental health in a way that's just completely normalised from this point onwards and that uh, depression, anxiety and so forth are, are, um, are nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, thank you for sharing your experience with it um, in LA. But I mean, I experienced anxiety when I first went to LA too. It's a very, I think like there is a perception about, you know, this idea of, oh, it's a big Hollywood dream and, and all that kind of stuff. And you go over and the, the reality is that, you know, when you do go over or, or definitely when we were there, I feel like you, you do feel very alone there. It's a, it's a strange city. You don't really know what you're doing. Um, you've got this big dream that you want to, you know, sort of achieve, but yeah, it's, it can be very isolating. And so I think that it, that is a collective thing that I've heard, you know, quite a lot of actors talk about in spite of the, maybe the perception of what it's like to live in Hollywood and, and pursue that dream. So I think it's, it's really good to, yeah, have a talk about it openly, which is really great. The other thing that I like to talk to my guests about is failure and rejection and the lessons that we learn from them. And as actors, obviously, we get rejected a lot. But I'm very, very curious to know, what has been your greatest failure or rejection and what have you learnt from it? 
<laughs> I feel triggered. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, there's too many, Rachel. There are too many. Um, greatest failure or rejection. Um, I mean, I don't know if there's one. There, there are so many, you know. It, I don't Maybe know the most can... memorable one or one that kind of sticks in your mind. Well, look, I know the one that affected me the most is so long ago as to be absurd to even talk about. But when I was a teenager, I went for a role in a series called The Henderson Kids, which, which uh, uh, you know, Ben Mendelsohn and Kylie Minogue were in, uh, funnily enough, back in the day before they were Ben Mendelsohn and Kylie Minogue. Um, but they were doing a second season of it and I was such a big fan of the first season that I desperately wanted to be in the second season and it was in that period between being a child actor and kind of taking it up again as an adult I'd sort of given it up but I was so wanting to do it to, to, to be in this show and uh I, that was that was uh, I remember getting the call that I didn't get that and bursting into tears I think that's probably the only time I've ever, ever cried for not getting a role um mm. but uh that one, that one still, obviously, I'm still holding on to all these years later. Um, there, there was certainly others along the way, um, you know, where you kind of certainly in hindsight go, oh, geez, it would have been good to get that role in Muriel's wedding. That turned out to be quite a big, yeah. big deal. Um, yeah. Or, you know, uh, there are, you know, um, quite, quite, quite a few of those along the way. I think, um, I think the one thing that happens with uh, getting older, I think, as an actor, and maybe this is the case in, in, in any industry, might not just be acting, but is that you just you do take the rejection a little bit more with a grain of salt. I think mm. it's, um, it's, uh, it's a lot more devastating, it was for me, to not get a role in my, uh, that a role I really wanted in my 20s uh, and 30s than it is now. Um, uh, I, I, I guess I've got more of a, I'm just more sort of pragmatic and realistic about it where I'm just like, well, yeah, they found they, they found someone else that was more right for the role. I mean, mm. you know, like like that's just the way it, it goes. So, you know, I, I'm, 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 it's very easy for me to, I know how many there are actors, how many actors there are and, and, you know, there are thousands of actors in one city. There are hundreds who could go for this role. There might be 50 to 100 who did go for this role not great odds that I'm going to be the one to get it. So mm. I, I, I kind of have that attitude now where it's um, it's still a little hard if I'm really down to, uh, you know, the wire for something um, yeah. that feels big. You know, there was a Baz Luhrmann film a few years ago that I was down to the final two for a role in and that was, that was really, I didn't cry, but I was really upset about that one yeah. because because. It was a combination of getting that close and yes. it being a Baz Luhrmann film. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a lot bigger than anything I've ever done. Uh, I think it's that combo, actually, really, that makes something hurt or not hurt is, is how much you wanted the role and how close you got to close it. In, got, yes. in, in a way, you'd rather have been like fifth in line rather than second because second feels like... Um, so close. <laughs> so close. In fact, I was reading this article just the other day about how psychologically people who win bronze medals in the Olympics are happier than people who win silver, even though it's not as good because <laughs> yes. the bronze medal winners go, I just was good enough to get a medal. And the <laughs> silver medalists go, I just missed out on gold. Yeah. You know, and I can yeah. so relate to that. It, it, mm. it, it's, it's like when you come, when you're, the, when you're down to the final two as an actor, you're like, damn, there's something I could have done. I know there's something I could have done. If you're, if you're third in line, fourth in line, you're like, ah, it was going to be the second one or the first one. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. just easier to deal with. Um, yeah. So I think those are the ones that are hardest. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask you is if you had an overarching statement to which you try to live your life by, what would that be? Final question. Um, I'm a big fan of the principle of charity, which uh, I, don't, I should have actually checked this definition so I don't get it wrong. But my understanding of it in a broad sense is that you should um, – Assume the best intent. Assume the best intentions of other people mm. rather than the worst. Yeah. So uh, when somebody does something or says something, especially now when you know, and social media is obviously probably the biggest culprit of this. People will jump on them 
and assume the absolute worst of the thing they said or did. Hmm. And usually there's a spectrum of things that could have been intended. And I think if we all assume somebody didn't necessarily, you know, mean that they wanted to, you know, throw your grandmother into a burning fire when they said X that they might have meant, mm. oh, hey, I just don't agree with you on that matter. Um, I, th- I think if we all just sort of shifted ourselves to, a, to try and go, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the benefit of the doubt in what you said then or what you did then yeah. rather than I'm going to think about all the things that thing could have meant and I'm going to choose the worst one and I'm going to assign that to you forever. Yes. So I would say principle of charity, assume the best of somebody's intentions is, is, is a great way to, to try and live. I, I, I mean, you know, we're all flawed. No one's perfect. And, and, I, and even, even in trying to um, live out that intention I just said, uh, is, you know, I'll be flawed in that too. I'll, I can catch myself going, oh, you, like, like you know, you could be in traffic and somebody cuts you off and you're, you know, this is a, really a good example of it where you get really angry and go, you bastard cutting me off in traffic. And you could just go, well, maybe they didn't see me. Maybe they, they just forgot to check their mirrors or I was in their blind spot and they didn't see me. Instead, you go straight to you are an inherently horrible human being who tried to nearly make me crash. And you have to stop yourself and go, no, I don't know that. I don't know what they saw. They might be mortified. They might have just realised what they did and feel terrible about it. So um, that would be my, at least my attempted or intended life uh, uh, philosophy. <laughs> well, I love that. It's nice to kind of just check yourself before you uh, fly off the rails and, and react crazily to um, somebody else's actions, yes. I guess, which is really good. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really have loved our chat. It's been so good to catch up after all this time. Definitely. So thank you again for taking the time. Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Guys, if you do want to find Damon, he's on Instagram at Damon Harriman. And if you did like this episode, make sure you screenshot it and share it to your IG stories. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Rach Active Podcast. Podcast.